Well, as you are already there uh, in your Bible in the book of Philippians, which we have been studying uh, together over the last number of, of months, uh, we are going back to, uh, to this particular uh, passage once again to be able to continue where we had left off. And I hope that as you walked through this passage, perhaps in preparation for uh, what, what we were going to do together this morning, that you, would, that you have already been thinking about the whole point of this passage. The last time we had, we had wrestled with and walked through various components of saying, okay, what, what, is, what is it that we need to do to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, as we continue to shape this passage, we're going to realize Paul is putting together all of this list of former accomplishments uh, that was just read before you. So that we could talk about this morning his highlight of the text, which was, what do we gain? As we look at a comparison this morning at Paul's previous life to his current life, to his admonition to the Philippian believers, what does this all matter for the sake of rejoicing and for the sake of unity and for the sake of standing firm for the sake of the gospel? He has been reiterating these themes over and over and over so we can't get tired of it, because this morning what he's going to do is going to help us reflect to simply say, what is it that we gain that is so valuable to us, that is so priceless in our minds, that we would virtually be willing to give up everything for the sake of this one thing? So as, as we walk through the text this morning in Galatians chapter 3, uh, we, we want to remind ourselves of this reality. Now, often when we think about the idea of the gospel, I want, you to, I want you to think about it in the way, in the sense of risk analysis, a risk assessment. When, when he says in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we think about it, he says, live a life that's worthy of the gospel. What he's doing is he's saying, listen, I want you to evaluate a qualitative analysis and say, and there's all kinds of these risk analysis, and you've done this probably at some point. You, you've evaluated, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you've thought to yourself, is this worth it? So you start running through a grid of questions. And I'm not going to use this other than just simply to say, the reality is we, we do this all the time as a Christian, but the problem is as Christians that sometimes when we do a risk analysis, we do it often like the way we fail to diet. We, like, we go to the store, we say, okay, risk analysis, I'm going to slow down the eating of the things that I enjoy, but I'm not going to altogether dispense of them, so I'll buy certain things that I still really like. You do that, right? Because you say, if I just eat less of them, it will be better than if I eat more of them. But you realize if you try to live out uh, even practicing a diet like that with a candy bar sitting on the counter, what tends to happen? You may say, well, in the morning I'll go cut a third of it off, and I feel better because I, didn't, I only ate a third of it. And at lunch I ate the other third, and then in the evening I eat this, and maybe added a few other things. See, in a risk analysis of our Christian walk, sometimes we say, if I just take a lesser diet of the worldly things, somehow that won't impact me, I'll just take it in lesser portions. But it still has a lot of the same impact if we're not careful. If all of a sudden that altogether our life, living a life of worthiness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, looks a lot like saying, well, it won't hurt me as much. 
if I just take it in slower bites? Well, Paul wants to really unpack a passage where he, he rehearses and, and unfolds this idea that there is nothing more valuable than the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. As a Christian, when you look and perhaps you have lived a, a life as, as, as your pre-saved life, I don't know when it is that everyone here has come to Christ, but you look back and you may see all this religious pedigree. You see all this religious heritage. In fact, it's very, very sad as I interact with, with young people in the culture these days because most often young people will say, well, I'm not really religious, but my mom was kind of, or my dad was kind of religious, but my grandma and my great-grandma were incredibly religious. And it's almost as if they bank their own religiosity on former generations past, but they themselves care very little about living a life that's worthy of the gospel. That can't be said of the Christian community. We have to be people who say, as Paul did, that there is nothing more incredibly valuable than the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. I love how one particular commentator said it, and this is what he's trying to make clear in this passage. He says the primary point is clear. Righteousness before God on the final day comes solely from God. And any attempt to add requirements of human invention to what God has freely given amounts to a rejection of the gospel entirely. Now we know this all throughout the New Testament, and many of our uh, Sunday school classes, our adult classes, uh, if we were to just take a, a really quick survey, because uh, I've been visiting all, all the different classes there, and I, I can go to the, uh, to the older group's class, and they're in Acts 16, and, and they've just been in Acts 15, and the Jerusalem Council of the Judaizers. I could go to uh, another one of the classes and they're studying Galatians and they're talking about the Judaizers. And then we can go to Titus and we can talk about the Judaizers. And then you can come to the morning service and we can talk about the Judaizers. You get an idea that maybe this was a big problem in the first century? And we're still talking about the impact on the gospel of whether this is truly the gospel or not. It had a massive impact in the first century world of the Apostle Paul. So much to the point that the Jewish, uh, Jewish individuals who believed in this kind of ritualistic gospel that was not a gospel at all, Paul said, that somehow if people believed this, they, they would be unable to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. This is so critical for us as we, as we think about these things together. And as we walk through, notice uh, uh, even just one small section Galatians 1, 6-7 says this. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, what's before us in the book of Philippians is Paul's continued heart and desire to say, don't believe for one moment there is a smorgasbord of gospels. Our culture, even in many different components of the religious world and the religious components of the culture, would love for all people to believe that there's some kind of religious buffet. And if you go down this way, you could just use this religious nature, and that's one gospel. And you could come to this particular table, and that's a different gospel. That's another way to get to heaven. 
Paul was so desirous to speak to every individual, every church, to say, do not distort the gospel, but don't deny the gospel, which means you have to make sure you know what the gospel is and why it's so valuable. And he said this over and over again, and Galatians is just one uh, book that really centralizes a perspective on the Judaizing belief. This morning, I want to look at three reasons together why gaining Christ brings a willingness to consider everything else a loss. Notice, if you would, in the text, in, in verse 4, as Jeff had already read, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, in, in one sense, he's saying this. If you want to go down that road, Judaizers, then I'll go down there with you, but I am going to show you that this means nothing, and if there was anybody who it could have meant something to, it would have been me, Paul would say. But even as he evaluated, he says, I have reason for confidence, not in the saying, Paul is not saying this, I am so good. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, if salvation came by religious contribution to rituals, heritage, and commitment in zeal, there could be no better example than him. Now, as he looked at that, he's going to say, let's take a look at what this is. I have reason, if this is, where, if this is your line of thinking, he's saying, then let's go down that road. And he says, if anyone thinks himself he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he gives these categories, circumcised on the eighth day. I want us to maybe categorize these ideas that Paul gives to us in three categories. One, we think about it religious tradition. Religious tradition. And, and ultimately, Paul is simply saying this. Religious tradition alone does not make the gospel. I grew up in a, in a context of environment all growing up in a very Roman Catholic community. In a very Lutheran, German, Bohemian community. Had the doors slammed in our face by them just simply saying, hey, we're here to give out a gospel uh, presentation or just simply to invite a child to VBS. And the first question was, what church are you from? And as soon as they found out, the door would shut in your face. I remember that all too well. But the reality of it is, is that there are people that are going to teach rituals and religiosity as a sense in which embodies and replaces the gospel of grace. Paul is saying, even for the Jewish Judaizers who anchored their whole entire Jewishness to the idea of the covenant of circumcision at the very beginning, Paul says, I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day if you look at my religious, my, my devotion and my parents' devotion to religious rituals, there could be none better. Now, keep, keep in mind this. Paul had no choice in that. His parents' devotion to the Jewish law and to the Jewish heritage and all the things and the accoutrements of, the Jude, of Judaism was something that Paul grew up in. And that was what it was to be a good Jew. You were born into the nation of Israel. You were circumcised on the eighth day. You embodied the very covenant of God that he had made with his people. And everyone else was secondary in result to you. He says, but that wasn't me. My parents, they circumcised me on the eighth day. I was of the people of 
Israel. Oh, if there couldn't have been one thing that the Judaizers wanted to prize more than anything else, it was to say, we are the nation of Israel. The ones who were given, as Hebrew says, as the author of Hebrews says, was given the very oracles of God. And yet the very group that had been given the very oracles of God did not even understand and rejected the very king that came in the Old Testament that they devoted themselves to. He says, I was circumcised. I was of the nation of Israel. Oh, there was something special for them. Please don't miss it. It's hard for us to understand that, but in, in the sense of the Jewish culture, for you to say, I am a Jew, in the Jewish mindset, there was something that was so prized about that, it was very hard for your mind to think, my brother, who is not a Jew, is as good and as blessed as I am. No, you just get blessings because of us. That's kind of how they thought. You're welcomed in through our path. You'll do it our way, or you'll keep traveling down the highway. That's the way it is. That's the way they thought. It was very hard for them. He says, knowing this, he said he really wants to help us understand that gaining Christ brings a purpose that is beyond just your religious heritage. Now he says, I, I was circumcised, I was of the nation of Israel. Notice this, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh man, of all the, of all the tribes of the, of the 12 tribes, you notice even in the divided kingdom, I mean, here you have Israel to the north and you have the kingdom in the south that consisted of the Benjamites and Judah. Who was the Israel's first king from? Benjamites. I mean, here there was even a prize in religious tribe. Not only, by the way, Paul's saying, I'm circumcised. My parents did that for me. I brought that into this. If you want to have confidence in the flesh, here's what it would look like. Oh, my, my parents did this for me. Then, not only that, we were born in a specific nation. And even among that, God has providentially chosen me to be of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, if there couldn't get any better uh, religious pedigree than that for a Jewish mindset. But he's moving this towards to say, to make an argument all the things that the world would honestly say mean something, Paul is saying it means nothing. Now, when we gain Christ, you and I recognize that there is something so special that we, we gain a purpose, we gain a direction. If you're here this morning and you think that just the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is something about religious rituals, that if you go and you came from a background where you confessed and you had to go to the priest and you, had to, and you had to go through rituals of infant baptism and all of these other things, Paul is simply in comparison to what that background saying, there is no religious ritual that replaces the gospel of grace. None. I've heard so many individuals in a Lutheran background, when I have witnessed to them, say things, and I'll say to them, I'll say, when did you come to put your faith in Christ? And they'll say something like this. I've always believed. Well, if you've always believed, was there ever a point where you believed you were damned and went to hell? If you didn't believe this. And if you go to any kind of religious, ritualistic uh, uh, ceremony at the end of life of someone, and I would say this specifically that happened, I, I witnessed this so often uh, in the Catholic and Lutheran community, 
they would always be, it would always be said something like this. We know they're in heaven because they were baptized as an infant and they were confirmed in the church. Okay, if that's your background, let me just say this. We're not trying to be bullying and saying, you know what, forget everything, all that's bad. Theology matters, right? Theology matters. And if we stand before Jesus Christ and and we say, hey, I've I've got my confirmation card, it's not going to matter to him. What he wants us to know is have you put your, your faith and have repented of your sin and put it in the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's no religious ritual that will ever earn you or, or welcome you into the glories of heaven. And yet I know so many people, as, as, I've, as I've continued to witness over the years, who honestly believe that purpose and direction will be found in religious tradition instead of in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not simply to say, uh, Paul isn't simply saying this, uh, you know what, uh, I, I hated all my Jewish heritage. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the gospel matters. And what I gained only by the gospel brought a truth and understanding to my life in a way that nothing else could. I'm of the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, now, now here's his, his, his own action. He had all this religious heritage. Then he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I mean, in Acts 26, you see this. Now, this was Paul's determination of his own life. He had all this religious heritage, but it went further than that. I just didn't grow up like this, he said. I chose this. I mean, Paul's testimony in the first century, by the way, if you read the book of Acts, it said he was known as a teacher uh, who had sat under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most prized teachers of the Jewish, uh, of Judaism. People knew Paul, and I believe to such a degree that when his name was used, that people would say, oh, I, I know him. That's Gamaliel's student. Oh man, that's the next Gamaliel right there. And he's saying, all of this, he said, as to the law, a Pharisee. I kept the law to the degree that I was supposed to. I went after it. He says, as to, uh, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Notice this. I mean, Paul is admitting in this litany of his background. There could not be a person that was more zealous than this. But you know what he's also saying? You can be, you can be zealous and wrong. You can be so committed to the gospel or to what you think the gospel is, and you're so zealous to tell everybody, even to the point, Paul says, that you would go and hunt down Christians. I mean, read Acts. Doesn't it astonish you this, this, that Apostle Paul he would do something like this. Because we, we're so inundated with his, 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 his gospel of grace and his changed character that the gospel brought. But his pre-saved life, could you imagine the haunting memories that Paul had to live with of hunting people down, going in house to house, and asking, where are the Christians? I know they're here. Hauling them off to prison, voting against them so that they could be taken off to be put to death. 
I mean, Paul, there couldn't have been a greater zeal of, of example as in Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous to see the things of the law be upheld. That was his Jewish heritage. He says, I was a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, don't read it this way, that Paul was saying, hey, I'm sinless. See, every Jew really understood their, their need for a sin atoning sacrifice. They would do this all the time at the Day of Atonement. They would do this all the time as they sacrificed various animals uh, in the Jewish rituals. They knew they were wrong. What Paul is saying is, as he says, as to the righteousness, if there could, if there could be righteousness that the law would bring, I would have had it. I was blameless. The idea of blamelessness, by the way, is not sinless. There's a very big difference when you think about character, and this is carried over in the New Testament, especially when it comes to elders. Let them be people who are blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. It means, in essence, is that if you could throw any accusations at this individual that they would have done something wrong, it would stick to them. But if, if you could throw all kinds of things, all kinds of accusations, and nothing sticks, this is the epitome of what, what Jesus went through before the high priest and all the other Pharisees. They threw accusation after accusation after accusation, and they could not find anything that would stick. He was blameless concerning his uprightness to the law. Paul was saying, I was zealous. I was a persecutor. He says, I was a Pharisee. And if righteousness could come under the law, oh my goodness, I would have had it. And then he continues to say, you know what, where, where does this, what does this say to us? He was saying, if I could have found purpose outside of the gospel of grace, then you would have it, and I would be telling you about it. But he's saying, it's not there. If there could be one thing that would be a detriment to the rejoicing and to the unity of the gospel in the Philippian church, it would be a different gospel or no gospel at all. This is the part of uh, Philippians 1, by the way, in verse 27, that we've become so familiar with that we are rejoicing side by side for the sake of the gospel. Well, in this text, he's bringing up the importance of the side by side for the sake of the genuine gospel. In order for us to do that, we have to recognize that gospel is very particular. We don't get to define it. Religious traditions don't get to define it. The God of heaven gets to define it. And he has defined it, and he has revealed it through the Son, Jesus Christ. He has inscripturated it through the inspiration of the word of God so that you and I, if we're wondering, is there a way to heaven? You can say, 1 John 5.13 says, these things are written. They are inscripturated that you might know that you can have eternal life. Oh, I can only imagine for the Philippian believers to say, I, I believe in the real gospel is to anchor their own soul that the purpose that they were devoting their entirety of their life for is connected with the Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why could he say that? Because the gospel of grace not only saves, but it sustains. It's so strong, it's so powerful, it's so right, it's so true that no one can take an individual 
who has been placed in the, in, in the son's hand, and the father will never remove them, ever. You can't even remove yourself. You're not even that strong. You can't even do it. You can't lose your salvation. When the gospel of grace is displayed, he says it is not by works. And that is exactly what the Judaizers were trying to display. But Christian, I want to just encourage you. Think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purpose that he gives to your life. Are you living with that kind of purpose? Are you living in a way that you're not just bent on doing religious things or being at religious activity, but you're honestly saying, I want to live out my life for the gospel so that God is glorified? Of course you're going to be blessed when you do that because these are God's ways. And Paul says, I want the Philippian believers to be blessed. I want them to find unity and the only way they'll have that is to find the purpose that only the gospel itself brings. People in our world are trying to find so much purpose in so many other things. They live out virtually their entire lives being advocates of something to make their name, their name, great. Or their company, great. For the Christian, it's different. For the Christian, we live out our purpose to make someone else's name great. God's name great. The moment that we're sidetracked and distracted from that purpose, we're not gaining, we're not recognizing the gain that we have found in Jesus Christ. This is why it is so sad when you see over time a Christian that slowly fades into looking more like the world than they do like a Christian and become classified in a sense of carnality, much like what we would see in 1 Corinthians. And all of a sudden we go, this is really sad. Because what they once enjoyed in purpose and value, they don't seem to hold or see the same value or purpose anymore. We have to help each other with that because knowing Christ brings purpose. Before, Paul thought his purpose was go hunt these Christians down and elevate the Jewish faith. And after Christ, you can only remember on that road to Damascus experience when that voice out of the light said to him, who are you that goes against my plan? And he altered the life of an individual who was so self-sufficient, full of pride, full of confidence in his own flesh, and he remarkably changed him for eternity. Oh, Christian, do you, do you remember when that happened for you? Do you remember the mindset change? The love and the affections that you had that you never thought would ever exist. You used to hate to read the Bible. You ever thought, you thought to yourself, I, all these religious people, a bunch of hypocrites that meet on Sunday, and now you're just one of them? You say, yes, come to church. So many people often say, but they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. I said, you'll feel right, you'll feel right at home. Because we struggle living lives out that are completely devoted to the sake of the gospel of Jesus. We struggle even within the community of believers to be united under the same gospel. Christians, we must maintain our purpose and our value because there is nothing that we will ever gain in the world that will surpass knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
It is worth every morning that you come to devotions. It's, it's worth every family worship. It's worth every sermon, every podcast, every, everything that you listen to, every Christian book that focuses on a biblical worldview and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is worth your time to embrace purpose and belonging in Christ. Whatever he had gained, he had counted loss for the sake of Christ, but that wasn't it. That wasn't just the end. Here's another gain. Knowing Christ produces discernment. He looked back at his pre-saved life, and, he's, and there was no way for him to come to the conclusion that all of a sudden, he, 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 uh, in and of himself, that he could live a, a life that was purposeful, even if it was filled with religious rituals, traditions, and heritage. Even if it was filled with all kinds of zeal purpose wasn't enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a discernment. Do you notice this? That when you look back at your pre-saved life, you're almost disgusted at who you once were. And if you don't, you should. And we shouldn't be Christians who prize in a level of testimony who looks and say, well, I was this and I was this. And almost as if we're, we're highlighting sinful activity. See, the gospel of grace brings a discernment that now when we share the gospel, we say, he changed. And this is what Paul is saying. This is who I was. This is who I am. You know, that discernment never comes by you alone. It becomes because you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the spirit of God who indwells you gives you a gospel worldview and discernment that you would never have in and of yourself. You'll look back and you'll even say, I remember when I used to believe that. I remember, you, I remember when I used to buy that argument. I remember when I used to practice these things. Maybe for you, you might even be saying to yourself, but I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one, I'm the only believer to know the gospel of grace. Oh, if that's you, you are in a glorious position to be able to give God the glory and share the gospel of grace with people in your family. Oh, to watch God do a work that I thought he could never do in the life of unsaved family members, one by one. It's like he's standing in heaven and he's just picking them off. Gotcha, 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 coming for you. He loves all of humanity in such a way that he wants them to know the gospel of truth. Paul wanted to reiterate that to the Philippians so they didn't become dis disunified in the body and lose sight of the gospel. Because the moment they lost sight of the gospel would be not only disunity, but God would not be exalted to the place that he ought to be. See, this discernment was something so incredible he continues in the passage and he says in verse number eight, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now he moves from religious heritage to saying, all right, if, it's, if I put any confidence in the flesh whatsoever, he says now he just uses the word everything and everything literally means everything. But please don't read this into Paul. You know what? I don't care anymore about my heritage. You know what? You just got done giving your DNA sample and they're just, you just got that package that told you how, how uh, Irish or German or whatever it is that you are and you thought, oh, look at me now. He's not saying, that's, he's not saying, oh, that's empty. 
What he's saying is, is none of that matters in, in, in respect to salvation. Doesn't matter if you're Greek, whether it doesn't matter if you're Jew or slave or free. Doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian. We could, we could list every ethnicity and we could say the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to transform all ethnic groups worldwide. It is not good for one ethnic group over against another. Oh, when the day comes when we stand in heaven and we see all the nations rejoice. Oh, what a sight that will be. Oh, what our ears will behold. Oh, I loved going to different countries and watching believers of other countries rejoice in the living God. And yeah, when you're from some place that's not a tradition, it's not the same way you did it, your first response is like, oh, I don't know if I can move like that. I can't move like they move. But I didn't look at them and say, oh, you're doing it wrong. You should look like this. No, we appreciate the gospel of grace that is there to work its supernatural work in the life of all nations. That's why it's so bizarre as we live and breathe in a culture that seems to be so exercised within the past year of focusing on various different racial groups that we have a gospel of grace who says, I'm about grace relations. That's what I'm about. It's the gospel of grace, how it impacts all people worldwide. If all of a sudden Christians give up that perspective, we have given up something that the gospel has told us that we ought to hold dearly. What do we gain? We gain purpose. We gain discernment. How do you gain it? Well, you gain it by prizing what is of value. And it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This idea of surpassing understanding is this incalculable worth, incalculable value of something. You held it up next to something else, and every time you tried to bring something to see if it would be better or worth more, it's like, no, nothing can compare. Nothing can compare to this. He's saying there is something surpassing because this something is supernatural. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by your own efforts. It comes by the work of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you notice this in the text? Paul's very deliberate in how he uses names. The surpassing worth of Christ, the prophet of the Old Testament, the Messiah. He is, he is the one we've been waiting for. He is Jesus, the priest who laid down his life, the atoning sacrifice to all of our sin. And he is my Lord. He is a prophet, he is a priest, he is a king. Does this not give shape to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. There is nothing that we could calculate that would be of greater worth than this person. Surpassing worth of knowing the prophet of the Old Testament the Savior, and the Lord. And I would just say, if you're here this morning and you have not repented and trusted and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is reaching out to you this morning. 
through the words of the very scripture that originated with himself. The great I am, the great redeemer. And he is saying to you, come, you who are weary and of heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The search can be over for you when you find the gospel of grace. You will find new purpose and new discernment and a new, new, uh, new perspective to live for because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that, that I may gain Christ. And of course you hear a lot of things, I think you understand what rubbish means. You can look in your New Testament Bible study and you can look in your MacArthur Bible study and you can say, this is, this is, this is so, uh, this is so, inval- it's so valueless, it's as good as manure. I went out to my, my in-law's farm, all, at least during my dating years of my wife, and there was many times I was dodging piles of that. Paul is saying, it's as good as a bunch of manure. It just stinks. It's the only, it's the only thing. You step in it, you're going to stink. You believe that that's where your purpose comes from, it's going to stink. God will not be glorified. He says, as I compare the things of even the Jewish history that I have, he is reaffirming to the Philippian believers, the Judaizers are wrong. There is nothing that can be added to saving grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. No works, no religious heritage, no zeal. And once you find it, you will see with such clarity and have such a biblical worldview that you'll say, nothing that matches up with the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth living for. He has counted them all but loss. Christian, sanctification is a process in the course of all of our lives. And some of the challenge that we have is as we continue to be made holy in his sight. And he does the sanctifying work. That you and I, we look into our lives and there are things that we found that were valuable to us that there's portions of them in the world that we still look out to and we say, that's got a little value in it. It's got a little purpose. Please be cautious to ever thinking that you will find pure enjoyment and satisfaction in the world's structure and the world's ideology. You will never find it. You have to count them, as Paul says, as rubbish in order that you might gain Christ. You don't just gain an individual to say, you know what? Now I can say Christ, and and I know what that means. You gain the fullness of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can have not only knowledge, but assent, and you act upon it. You notice how Paul moves in transition. You have a discernment from what what true gospel is and what a false gospel is. What does he say it is? He says, indeed, I counted everything as a loss. And then he jumps in, he says, and and so that he could say this in verse 8. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish to gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. What is it going to take to live by faith? You can't just come and say, I have knowledge. Because James 1.19 says, even the demons believe and they tremble. 
Knowledge isn't enough, although knowledge is a component. For us not to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrong for Christians if we don't take a deliberate aim to say we ought to be evangelizing people who are lost and destined for hell. But knowledge alone isn't enough. But once you understand, here's who Jesus is. I think we fictitiously want to believe in a culture that kind of founded ideas on Christian principles and a Christian heritage that somehow you won't see people in Cape Girardeau area or Jackson or the communities around us as if everybody's just heard about Jesus. It doesn't take you very long if you're actually deliberate about evangelism to realize that some people have never been introduced to the person of Jesus Christ. That's here. That's just not out there beyond us. It's here among us. We have to share the knowledge. Well, what it is, what does it mean to accept Christ? You know the truth. This is 1 Corinthians 15. He, was, he came to save you. He, was, he, he came to save and shed his blood and died on the cross, rose again from the grave. And then all of a sudden you take another step. And you say, here's what it says. And you make a mental assent and you go, that's true. That's actually true. You know, that's not you all of a sudden having some epiphany all on your own. That is John 6, that no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit turns the light on through the work of the Spirit. You make a mental ascent, which was given to you and drew you by his work of grace, and all of a sudden, when you see the incomparable riches of Christ, which you could gain in Jesus Christ, you say, I got to do something. Every young person, every, every older person who comes to this crucial moment where their knowledge and their belief has to be put into action, which is for Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that God had raised him from the dead. Don't you just love that last part? You just want to almost yell it out. You will be saved. Like you'll be saved. If sin wasn't a problem, saving means nothing. It's primarily because we have such a sin problem that it means everything. It is a knowledge, it's in a sense, it's action. You have to repent and turn to Christ and see the incalculable riches of grace found only in him. Christian, don't ever lose the joy of that. Don't ever stop meditating on it. Don't ever come to a sermon, look in the bullet and say, oh, just read through that in my devotion. I could have stayed home. We should never be able to get enough of the gospel that gained us everything in Jesus Christ. What else do we gain? Knowing Christ celebrates true identity. It wasn't in the law that Paul found identity. It, got, it brought him purpose. It brought him discernment. It gave him a new identity in Christ. And I love how he describes it. And he says, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Where does your righteousness come? I mean, if we had just asked the question uh, this morning, hey, slip up your hand if you, have, if, you're, if, if you have righteousness in and of yourself, guess what? This is what we'd get. 
No one here has it. Which means it's not in you. Something is wrong. You're a sinner. That's the problem. You have no righteousness. Well, we live in a world that basically says you have to re-educate. That's the problem. People don't have enough knowledge. If we just give them the knowledge, give them the tools, then they'll be able to be successful. See, it's not that way when you're a sinner. You have no righteousness, and the only way to get righteousness is through someone else, not through yourself. Oh, big banners uh, pasted all across various components of schools uh, worldwide that I, I will almost kind of chuckle inside. When I go in and I walk into the school and I see this big banner that says, Believe in yourself. Oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> we are in trouble. If that becomes the moral mantra by which we live and endorse as Christians. See, believing in yourself, no matter where you came from, no matter how good your family is, no matter how zealous you are, Paul is saying, it will mean nothing because you have no righteousness. Oh, but there is one. Through his sacrifice on the cross, obtained a righteousness of God that he freely wants to give to all who repent and put their faith in him. Oh, Christian, what are we doing to share this gospel of grace? Who do you need to talk to this week at work, build a relationship with, care for? What child in your home is still an unbeliever? Care about the gospel. Be found in him. A new identity. It's not believe in yourself. It's believe in the only one who can save. The only one who brings righteousness. Oh, to think that the Father in heaven right now views my life as, as being righteous in his sight. Oh, the incomparable riches of his righteousness and grace. That he is not when he looks at me filled with wrath any longer, who will send me to eternal punishment and hell. But he gave me the gift of righteousness, the free gift of salvation, not by works, lest everyone, so no one would perish. Christian, you are given a new identity, and it's not, it's not for you to put alongside your new identity in Christ, this in Christ and I want to be this. You give up everything. It's not, hey, look, I'm a CEO. I'm in Christ, but I'm this important. I'm in Christ, but I've got all these degrees. No, it means nothing. Not, none of that will get you righteousness. For us as Christians, being found in him is so valuable to us that we, we reject everything else and we say, you know what, I'm going to please him with the rest of my life. The more we do this, the more we, we really live out that righteousness never came from us. It never came from the law. It was a righteousness through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Yes, you can't be saved unless you repent and believe. In a world where everyone says you can be saved by any which way of your choosing, it is only by repentance and faith. And only those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ will find the doorways of heaven open to you because of the righteousness that was freely given on your behalf. And you'll spend all eternity in enjoyment 
of what you have gained in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my Savior. It's not, Paul says, if, if you could look and he's saying to the Philippian believers, if there could be a righteousness found in that system, I would have found it. But the Lord himself showed me the way. I repented, I trusted. This gospel is worth it. You'll gain everything. You'll be united with a purpose, with discernment, and a new identity. Where the world is trying to live for themselves, the Christians are living for God and for one another. So that we can live out Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. Christians, are we doing that? Because if we live our entirety of our life, what will we gain if we gain the whole world and yet people are losing their soul? I think it takes us all the way to the very end when we think of the book of Ecclesiastes when, when he would say, what is the end of the matter? What is it? It's to fear God and keep his commandments. Christian, you gain so much of the incalculable riches of the grace of God. What more could you think of ever doing with your life than to do what Romans 12 says, that count it your reasonable service to live a life of worship? Let's do it together. Let's rejoice in the unity that we have in the gospel so that as people come to know Christ and as Christians are living and counting brothers and sisters as more important than myself, we look out and we say, I know somebody is doing something great. It's not us, it's him. The more we do that, the more we will be united in Christ. And we'll enjoy that for eternity. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for what you have gained us in Christ. That righteousness was not somehow some effort by religious rituals, heritage, or zeal that it came through the righteousness that we only get through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, help us share this message. We thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.